Hello, I'm Hank Gross, MidHudsonNews.com, with a conversation I had with Bishop James Rollins from the city of Middletown. You've been uh, an ordained pastor since 1993. You've been a bishop for a little over a year. And what's the name of your congregation, first of all? I am the, the founder and senior pastor of the Tabernacle here in Middletown, New York. You have been a community activist and a community leader since you and I have known each other, which has to be 30 years, perhaps? Yeah, it's been well over, almost 30 years, very close to it. And uh, you were on the Middletown City Council. Uh, You were the president of the NAACP and uh, just an outspoken local resident. First of all, why why do you think the, the Middletown chapter was revived and then fell apart again and has has not come back? Well, one of the challenges, I've also served as a Middletown Police Commissioner. One of the challenges uh, in regards to participation in the NAACP has been membership and getting people to commit to a sustained approach to thwarting and pushing back the hand of oppression and dealing with uh, the challenges and problems associated with racism in our country, as well as in our local communities. I don't think it is because of the the membership cost. I think it's because we live in an age where people, unfortunately, don't see the problems until they become their problems. When I was president of the NAACP, what we would find is when people had issues, they would come. And more often than not, they probably would become members as the organization became an advocate for them. But then once it was no longer their problem or we, their problem was solved, then they went about uh, their business. And that's, you know, primarily the problem when you look at an organization uh, that thrives on, on volunteerism. I mean, you see that even on the local government level, where if it's a hot-button issue that affects you, several people show up to city council meetings, town board meetings, county legislature meetings, and if it doesn't affect you and it's it's not a hot-button issue, the chambers are empty. That's exactly correct, Hank. You you see that uh, often, whether it's public hearings, And I don't know any other way to look at it except that it's part of, unfortunately, a part of our individualistic culture Uh, here in America, you know, and in most of our urban cities. It tends to be a mindset of, you know, uh, what about me or once I get mine or it's about me. And, you know, what we are finding that unlike in some other cultures where, They are more collectivistic. They tend to rally around a cause. For example, you can look over in some of our uh, countries in the Middle East where people are so passionate about the things that happen to their people or or, uh, within the people that they love that you'll find someone throwing a rock at a tank. Yet what you say is is so interesting because you look at the the Newburgh Highland Falls chapter or the Northern Duchess chapter, which encompasses uh, Poughkeepsie and other areas, and they're all active. And I would hazard a guess that there aren't any 
any more uh, aren't larger numbers of of uh, black people in those areas than there are in the greater Middletown area. No, there isn't. And I will say to you that with the uh, things that are happening now, I have uh, received quite a few calls about reviving the Middletown chapter. And as I've said to them, I uh, am certainly willing to be a part of, um, you know, any revitalization of the organization or helping anyone who wants to be uh, a leader in the organization. But there has to be some things put in place to make that happen. For example, there needs to be a minimum of 100 people who are willing to start the chapter uh, so that you have not only enough people to carry out the work needed, but also uh, for the different areas uh, organizationally. But it requires, according to New York State, uh, the, in, in the New York State NAACP guidelines, there needs to be a minimum of 100 people. Okay. Now, in these terrible pandemic times where we're seeing um, black and brown people affected more partially because many of them are in jobs that have them out there while others were told stay at home and uh, they were getting it and and it was spreading and so forth Um, but the superintendent of the Newburgh School District in his graduation speech referred to uh, coronavirus as a racist virus. What's your reaction to hearing that? Well, I, I, I am familiar with the superintendent from the Newburgh School District. I wasn't there, of course, to hear him uh, make that comment. What I will say, though, is that I do not Uh, believe that the virus in and of itself is a racist virus. Um, And I can say that uh, primarily because to ascribe to that position, in my opinion, would be the equivalent of what I've heard in terms of the rhetoric coming from the White House, namely President Trump in Washington, who refers to the virus uh, in that vernacular, he says that it's the Wuhan virus or the Kung flu virus. And the rhetoric that comes uh, out of the White House suggests that it's a racist virus. Um, and that's just not the case, in my belief. I will say that, uh, however, it, it disproportionately affects uh, black and brown people. And, and to better have a better understanding of that, we'd really have to look at the, um, the mechanics of racism in America, which, in my opinion, has uh, contributed largely to the negative impact on brown and black people. For example, when you look at the uh, political uh, infrastructure of our country, when you look at the economics of our country and how things are set up, um, I would say that that's probably the biggest piece of it. Uh, Black people, for example, live in food deserts where they don't have um, the access, perhaps, to fresh foods. They don't have the income as a result of systemic racism and economic policies 
that go back a very long way. I can take you all the way back uh, even to the 1970s when Richard Nixon, for example, declared uh, a war on crime uh, that disproportionately affected uh, black and brown people, probably during that time, more black people than brown people. And then uh, Ronald Reagan picked up uh, the mantle where Nixon left off in declaring a war on drugs. Michelle Alexander, in her great book, uh, The New Jim Crow, uh, chronicles uh, the transition, if you will, of uh, the old Jim Crow era, which uh, black Americans thought was going to be dispelled through the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. But we saw that it was picked up by the likes of a Richard Nixon, who began to use rhetoric even that we hear today. For example, he called himself, ironically, Hank, the law and order president. Does that sound familiar? Sure does. Ronald Reagan referred to himself as a law and order president. And they use what they would call uh, very tactical language when you refer to war on indigenous peoples. It says something about the underlying language and the dog whistles and the silent messages that are being communicated to a specific group of people who we now know, unfortunately, today as conservatives. Now, that doesn't mean that you didn't have some progressives in there, because we're finding even in uh, during that era that, that Ronald Reagan was overwhelmingly uh, selected or elected president by a 30, 35 percent defection of people who said they were uh, part of uh, uh, the Democratic Party or the new Democratic, progressive Democratic Party. They defected and voted for him because of their ideals in regards to law and order. They believed in his rhetoric regarding law and order. They believed in what he said he was going to do in regards to the war on drugs, which seriously affected black and brown people. Bring that up to the the 2020s. We still see the same thing happening. Black people uh, are disproportionately affected. And as a result, as you said, they have to go back to work uh, in uh, in jobs that certainly put them at a greater risk of contracting the virus. They are dependent uh, more so on um, uh, tips and, and, and to augment their wages because of the type of employment that they may have. Black and brown people uh, may not have had the same level of health care. And to bolster that, we find ourselves, just as an example, many of them uh, who were perhaps not covered by insurance actually as a result of the Affordable Care Act were actually in the position to improve their health. And we have a president who wanted, who asked the Supreme Court to literally abolish the Affordable Care Act because President Barack Obama's name is connected to it. And he did it in the middle of, and he asked for it in the middle of a pandemic. The issue of uh, the president with name-calling and, and fixing names to, to certain groups, 
Uh, when he talks about progressives, uh, he equates them to perhaps uh, World War II socialism. He calls them socialists. And um, that's all part of his, his effort to divide the nation, I would think. Oh, absolutely. Right. He, he thrives on divisive rhetoric because, in his opinion, it worked in the past and it will still work today. Okay? It's the old proverbial tactic of, 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 of someone who's trying to win a war at any cost. Uh, or what they perceive to be a war at any cost, you know, understanding that uh, a divided house cannot stand. If he can divide the people, uh, then he can certainly win. And I don't understand how a, how Americans can think that America can survive in the midst of division. Well, Hank, I think it says something about America. I, I would ask the question, for example, you know, uh, why did it take a George Floyd for America to hear or to listen? I would ask that kind of question, you know, because it, it it's not as though he is certainly the first person who who um, was uh, violently killed at the hands as an unarmed black man at the, at the hands of law enforcement. But I think it represents something bigger. I posed the question to someone, I said, what is the image of America? And when I thought about it, Hank, I started to kind of go back, at least from my lifetime, and, you know, I couldn't help but think that the image of America is, is unfortunate, because the image of America is an image that cannot uh, remove its original sin. The image of America is the Emmett Till. A 14-year-old boy who was tortured uh, for what they say was a whistle. The image of America is 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 uh, black and white people, even those who were progressive progressives, joining forces with them, walking across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and being uh, attacked by by police dogs and being thrown to the ground by having fire hoses turned on them. The image of America, uh, unfortunately, is a Dylan Roof being invited into a black church's Bible study and then turning in a terroristic manner to killing the people who invited him to study the Word of God. The image of America is George Floyd's face looking into the camera just before it goes limp and just before it's lifeless with the knee of a Derek Chauvin perched upon his neck with Chauvin's, the Minneapolis police officer's hands in his pocket, his glasses comfortably placed upon the top of his head, his badge showing the authority that he had for doing what he did shining brightly pinned to his heart, and the license plate from his car, which clearly says police. That's the image of America. It's the unfortunate image of America. And, 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 it's, and it's something that has not gone away when you watch an Armand Albury running and being gunned down from a car in none other than Georgia. 
when you see a Breonna Taylor who served other people as an EMT being gunned down in her own house and her and her murderers still haven't been brought to justice. That's the image of America. That's the unfortunate image of America. But all cops aren't bad, obviously. And exactly. And, and you know what? If you say to me, 98% of the cops are good, and I do believe that there are many, many, many good police officers. I know many of them. I'm proud to say I know them. But if 2% of the police officers are bad, then why is it so difficult for us to stop the, the brutality that we see? If we say 98% of them are good. What is the issue? Why can't we get this thing under control that has seemed that has pervaded the American culture almost since the beginning of the country? And these cops obviously learned their behavior at home when they were kids. And so it, it begs the question of do we need more training, more sensitivity, uh, training uh, more discussion with um, police applicants. And I think that's all what brought us now to Governor Cuomo saying, I want every police department, all 500 and some odd in the state, to sit down with the community and basically reinvent the police. You know, Hank, I, I applaud the governor for instituting the executive order. I applaud every... Uh, elected official who is uh, joining forces. The problem, though, for me is I ask the question, Hank, and perhaps uh, your listeners and others who might respond via uh, when they hear this, this podcast, they may respond in terms of comments and so forth. But, but I would ask, you know, how can you how can you change police officers when you have a culture, unfortunately, that has been supported uh, even to the federal levels of government that encourage a culture of impunity? You know, you can't change the culture of of policing without changing the culture of police officers. So when you when you think about something along those lines, you know, uh, how does uh, how do you how do you change the mindset of a Derek Chauvin who has been on the force for for, uh, you know, decades and who had 18 or so prior incidents. And yet he still, you know, continue to train other officers. I'll give you a classic example. The complicity that was present in the. Uh, and, and, and my narrative of that particular image, it wasn't just Derek Chauvin and George Floyd's faces in that picture. There were the three officers who were complicit, who actually sanctioned the violence that was taking place in the life and, and taking the life of an unarmed black man. They were complicit in the violence through their silence. We, we got a picture of something there, Hank, that has to be addressed in this country. Somebody had to call the cops in the first place. Where was that individual? And the irony of that whole scenario 
is that it took the courage of a 17-year-old girl to hold her camera up and record uh, that incident for the world to see. Here's my point. What, where would we be if that 17-year-old girl had not recorded what happened to George Floyd? Well, chances are... So it's a much bigger issue. Sure. Now, the other interesting fact is that you look at the mid-Hudson Valley cities with the large black and brown population, the Middletown, the Newburgh, the Poughkeepsie, the Kingston, um, and this was brought out at the Middletown, the first community meeting the other day, uh, the very low numbers of black police officers. And, oh, absolutely. Right? And I realize it's a it, it's going to take time because they have to, no matter what color you are, you have to uh, be uh, pass a civil service test, right? And the yes. agility test. But it seems that we and need... The psycholo- and, and the psychological the, test. But I'm wondering if we have to go further than that, uh, perhaps digging deeper in the psychological test part of it to determine... Uh, what's in the back of the minds of some of these people. Oh, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I think the the threshold for the psychological portion perhaps has to be raised. I think that we have to certainly incorporate as a part of the psychological test, um, you know, whether or not there are um, there is a propensity for implicit bias or, you know, dealing with what they now refer to as unconscious bias. You may have even heard me say that I have a problem with those two statements. I understand the social and the theoretical application of those terms, uh, even from what some might consider a clinical perspective. I have a problem with implicit bias, the terms implicit bias, and the terms unconscious bias, strictly because they suggest uh, that or they seem to um, uh, they seem to dilute the impact of of race or you know in that whole process. It's almost as though that there's an effort to make it more palatable, a more acceptable term, uh, so that it actually takes the word race out of racism. It's here's how I equate it. When you start talking about its impact on the actual behavior of the people that are practicing it, it kind of goes back to when we when we heard the crack epidemic. As long as it was just affecting what were known as black or brown people, it was more or less a crime. But it seems like when, you know, and it was the same way with heroin. But when it began to affect white people, when it began to affect the affect the majority, when it moved into the suburbs, all of a sudden it became an epidemic and it became more of a mental health issue than an issue uh, of uh, than a criminal issue. What does that say about, you know, where we go? And so when we look at police officers, these officers, you know, are expected to to be trained. And so when you look at it, or to be able to uh, not bring those things into the job. But as you noted, the percentage of people who want to be in law enforcement or believe, uh, who are going to be police officers are very low. 
And we have to ask the hard question as to why. It was raised during our Middletown uh, forum that perhaps because of uh, uh, adverse childhood experiences or early experiences with police in minority communities, black and brown communities, that those kids don't have a favorable, perce- favorable perception of what it would be to be a police officer. Because when the police come to their communities, they don't appear to be there to protect and to serve. And again, that's not labeling all of the officers because I've had some great experiences with police officers. But, you know, unfortunately, it's the bad apples, you know, you know, as you all know, it's the bad apples that create the perception that gets the most uh, that's the most visible. It's like, you know, we don't see stories on the front page of the paper of the Boy Scout walking the elderly lady across the street to make sure that she gets safely from one side to the other. But if that kid is. Is, is he snatches the purse of that elderly person, then it's on the front page. Sure. Or it's on that first page on page two. So it's cultural, Hank. It's cultural. And when I look at the number of people who would join Middletown's police force, I know that they have been trying. I've had conversations with the civil service director, uh, the commissioner, rather, in uh, trying to recruit minorities, blacks, to join the force. There's a lot, there are biases uh, at the state level in the test. I don't think the test is conducive to being, uh, you know, open so that, you know, the blacks uh, and brown people may be able to pass the test. I certainly don't think there is an issue with agility, you know, when it comes to the physical aspects of doing the job or even psychologically. But there are educational requirements, 60 college credits, for example, in the in the state in the city of Middletown. But you don't have that, for example, at the state police. I think the state police only requires 30 college credits. And so I'd have to ask the question, why uh, are there more black state police officers, state troopers than there are in the local municipalities? And I think it it warrants having a study done. Middletown has one black police officer on a force that has 70 officers, and they have seven Hispanic officers. And if if I go back, I believe that's probably the largest number of Hispanic officers that they've had. Uh, They've had a few. I think they had a black female officer in the past. But, um, you know, when you look around the town of Wallkill, doesn't have uh, many, uh, and I can look around Orange County, uh, you know, and, and Dutchess County and, and Rockland, you, you just don't see the black uh, black people going into law enforcement for that, uh, for that purpose. When I've had this conversation, we found that when blacks study criminal justice, more often than not, they end up in probation or they end up in corrections. Do you feel that that um, in time we will see more black and brown cops uh, as uh, as they they people get in tuned with with what's going on and the populations keep uh, 
I turning to the point. I mean, Middletown right now, Middletown, Newburgh, probably Poughkeepsie. Um, the majority populations are the minority populations now, the black and the brown. Yes, they are. Right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, so we do need more. I can't tell you the number of times on police scanners I hear if, if an officer pulls over uh, somebody, let's say, for a traffic violation, he says, uh, we have a language barrier here. Uh, do you have a Spanish-speaking officer available? And, uh, heck, if we, if we had, uh, if we made it mandatory, perhaps, that, that uh, everybody has to have at least some degree of uh, uh, bilingual training, uh, you wouldn't have to go hunting for a minority officer to, to handle a case. Well, I think that, you know, there's a challenge there. They're both, you know, as there are pros and cons to everything. While I certainly would welcome the uh, increase in the number of black and brown officers, the challenge there is you'd be adding another uh, requirement, you know, that stems, that goes back to, you know, whether or not our education system is going to be sufficient to prepare uh, the individuals who would be our police officers for tomorrow. They'd have to be bilingual, but if they get that, uh, you know, in, if they get it in grade school, then they are fluent at least in, uh, uh, you know, the other language that's probably uh, more prevalent in our societies. My granddaughter, for example, is, is in first grade and she's taking Spanish now. So I think down the road uh, that is going to change because people will be more, there will be more bilingual uh, minorities uh, in this country. And hopefully that can be a stepping stone to bringing about some equality in terms of what policing looks like in our communities. What would you like to see different about the written police exam to make it uh uh, I don't want to say easier, but um, for um, black and brown people to take it and, and pass it. I don't think it needs to be necessarily made easier. I just think it needs to be, uh, you know, it needs to be it needs to be in, on a level playing ground. It's like the SAT. They are culturally biased, some of the questions. And I think they need to reevaluate that. You know, it's like anything else. Unfortunately, when something is created, if if nobody screams about it, they leave it as is, you know, and it's that way for, you know, uh, perpetuity uh, for all intents and purposes. If no one screams and reminds them that it needs to be modified, that it needs to be changed so that it is, in fact, uh, you know, relevant to the people that are going to be taking it. Now, you know, I, you I, think I, about... You think about where it is, and I've had this conversation with with um, with the Middletown Civil Service Commissioner, and he says it's something that we need to really push uh, towards our um, state elected officials, our assembly persons, and our state senators. So I've already begun that process as well, and I committed with Joe Massey, who was the Middletown uh, Civil Service Commissioner, to work with him. Uh, again, he, we've tried before so that they can perhaps practice for these exams. They can be prepared uh, so that they can do better. And I'd like to see them, uh, you know, not only in law enforcement as police officers, but I'd like to see them in law enforcement so that they can be a part of 
the U.S. Marshal Service. The, you know, they can be a part of the Secret Service. I'd like to see them consider law enforcement in general. We, uh, the law is the law. So if if there are questions on there specifically about the law, it's it's either one way or the other. I would think, um, but the idea of the tutoring, the sitting down and, and discussing and teaching people how to take the exam. Uh, it's almost like a, um, a region study group before taking Absolutely. it, right? Absolutely. And that's what I'm saying needs to happen uh, because, you know, I, you know, when you think about it, you know, what does the, the exam look like? If you go to certain areas of the country or certain cities, you know, what is their what does the police exam look like for the uh, officers who are in a Newark, New Jersey or a Jersey City, New Jersey, you know, where there are large minority populations? What does their police exam look like? Why are their officers or what did they have to do to pass? What is it that enables, you know, uh, black and brown people to pass the uh, exam for becoming uh, New York State troopers? Let's look at all the pieces uh, so that we can do something about it. Uh, the recruiting process, you know, what does it look like? Where are you going to do the recruiting? You know, what happens with, you know, I said to him in the meeting, the Middletown meeting, that I have a niece, uh, and of course she lives in North Carolina, but I know that the program um, is present here in in uh, Middletown in New York as well, that when she graduated high school, she had 60 college credits. So in essence, you know, when she starts start school this coming fall, she'll be a rising junior. And so if you had that same thing, you'd have young people, if they'd been introduced to a career in law enforcement, by the time they graduate high school at 18 or 19 years old, they've already got enough college credits to actually become a police officer where the requirements are 60 college credits. And what's interesting also is that in the military, you see a large number of black and brown people. Uh, Now, is that because they could not... uh, find a job in the civilian world, or did they want to use the uh, military, among other things, to, to gain an education? But I find it interesting that you see so many more black and brown people in the military than you do, probably percentage-wise, than in uh, civilian police. That is correct, Hank. And historically, that's actually been... Uh you know, when you look at what happens, I grew up in a very urban environment, uh, densely populated urban environment in, in Virginia, in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, you know, my parents migrated from the rural South. Uh, and so we saw young the guys that didn't go to college because they couldn't afford to go to college. They went into the military. And some some people went to went to the military just to get out of the ghetto, to give themselves an opportunity to do something better for themselves, and to get the necessary training needed to launch them into a career after they got out of the military. And and so you know, unfortunately, you know, I mean, fortunately, rather things have changed, but 
You've even got some problems, and we've seen it, in terms of racism in our armed forces. Oh, sure. And uh, uh, sexual harassment in the armed forces. So, you know, and that tells me that it's a culture, Hank. It's, it's a cultural issue that must be dealt with. And the culture is a culture of racism. And so now we are seeing people paying more attention to that. And they're referring to it as, you know, how do we deal with implicit bias, which is what they're calling it. And how do we deal with unconscious bias as a result of it? You know, I would argue there's a great book written by um, uh, that deals with that by uh, Dr. Robin uh, D'Angelo, and it's titled White Fragility. If you read that book along with Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, your worldview will change. If your worldview does not change, then it says something about who you are and what your thought process is. Because they both deal with the two sides of the spectrum that have fueled, fostered, and, and, and been the foundation, in my opinion, of the American culture. All right. How can a person, let's say a white person, uh, growing up in a household which is racist and it's drilled in that uh, black and brown people are useless, they're, they're no good, they're this, they're that, the other thing, and then the person passes all the tests, becomes a cop, I don't think that uh, any matter of any degree of uh, bias training is going to erase what's been planted in his head. Well, you're, what you're saying is that, that that would fall under the caption of or the heading of unconscious bias. And it doesn't come up until they are confronted, you know, with a challenging situation. What I say to that, Hank, is racism, racism in America is hardwired, to use a technological term. And what we've got, to, what, what has to happen uh, in order for us to even begin to see a modicum of change is, the, you know, the minds, people, your software has to be changed. If you don't update the software on your computer, it becomes obsolete. And the software would be the equivalent of how they think, you know, what they've been exposed to. I went through this when I was the president of the Middletown NAACP in regards to what people see when they're in the schools. For example, we have school we have school districts that don't have any black teachers. So what does it look like if you are in school, you leave home at five years old and you begin your education, uh, or you lived in an environment that was completely uh, segregated because that's just where your parents were, middle class or what have you, and they didn't live in a diverse neighborhood. So you don't really get exposure to a lot of, or a lot of exposure to other cultures or other peoples, you know, until you go to school. But then you go to a school that's because of where it is geographically, that's also predominantly one major, uh, one race of people. So now at fifth grade, uh, you know, you don't see them. And every teacher that you have from kindergarten to 12th grade 
is white. You decide that you want to go into law enforcement or you want to go into the military, you know, what's your mindset? It seems to me that uh, while racism has, has been there to one degree or another in terms of rising to the surface, uh, would you agree that uh, in, uh, in particular with the current Washington administration that has fueled the fire? I mean, I don't recall seeing this with the Obama administration. We went from the first black American president to a guy who uh, calls everybody, he labels everybody with uh, unkind names and um, talks about, as you said, the, the virus that, that was believed to start in China and so on and so forth. And do you think that, that uh, he, whether consciously or subconsciously, helped stoke the, the flames of racism? I, I, without a doubt, without a doubt, he has stoked that. In fact, I'll go so far as to say that Donald Trump is the response to Barack Obama being able to secure two terms in the highest office in the land. He is a response to the racist, the systematic racism in America that did not did not accept uh, its first black president. In fact, Donald Trump was uh, was at the forefront of actually saying that he wasn't qualified to be president, not you know because he wasn't a native of America. He started the whole and and supported financially and idealistically or ideologically the whole birther movement. He caused them to give it a name, and he's extremely proud of it. And so I think Donald Trump is a direct response to a political mindset and to a culture that didn't like the idea that Barack Obama was the president in the first place. Now, there will be many who will say, I didn't despise, I didn't like, uh, I didn't have a problem with him being president because of the color of his skin. I didn't have, I had a problem with him being president because of his ideolo- ideology and his political views. And so with those people, uh, and those are people who, who resent being called racist. They literally, uh, uh, you know, it's been my experience that, you know, there are triggers in America for certain people if they, if, you know, they are quote unquote unkind, if they suffer from unconscious bias or implicit bias, they detest being called racist and they detest being told that they are benefactors of white privilege. Those two statements, white privilege and racist, will set them off like nobody's business. The white supremacist Richard Spencer said that the word racist is a pejorative term, but the term, the word racist is a noun. So where do we go? Yeah, where do we go from here then? Uh, I, over 200 years and uh, the ebb and flow of, of racism surfacing, I and it, it's, there have been I would be I would be intellectually disingenuous to say that we haven't made some progress. However, when something is systemic uh, and institutional, uh, it's going to really take, um, you know, it's going to take a micro approach 
that will result in my, a, my, a macro impact. And what I mean by that, it has to start with the individual. I've maintained, uh, at least especially as a, as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel, uh, as a Christian, that what we're seeing is, is a heart issue. People talk about the ideals. They talk about the genius of our founding fathers. They talk about the ingenuity. They talk about the intelligence of our founding fathers. But no one ever talks about the heart of our founding fathers. For example, the man who said that, um, who, who penned the phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and then had the signatures of many others who are recognized as the founding fathers. They owned slaves. Thomas Jefferson owned 700 slaves in his lifetime and had a, uh, a worldview, a belief that blacks were inferior. Yet he said that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That begs the question, Hank. Who is he talking about when he says we? Is it inclusive or exclusive? Who is he talk what is he talking about? Who is he talking about when he says we? What is he talking about when he says these truths? What truths? Because he then goes on to say that they are self evident. How can uh, and how can a slave believe that those truths are self-evident or that they were created equal when they're not treated even as good as the animals are. This is the foundation. That's how embedded it is. And you could trace it beyond America with with the Israelites going way back and um, what happened to the Jewish faith uh, 5,000 years ago and then bringing it up to the twenty uh, the twentieth century with the Holocaust, um, where it's one of the reasons why I say Hank that the church I'm confident that especially as a minister as a bishop in in in, in, in my reformation that you know that the church has a a colossal a, a you know a key responsibility and turning it around because it does begin with individuals. It's a hard issue. We can't legislate morality, whether it's in law enforcement or any other area of our society. That's a heart issue. It goes to who a person is. And so, you know, Dr. King wrote this last, his last book was, Where Do We Go From Here? But let me remind you of the subtitle of that book was Community or Chaos. And I think we probably are getting a glimpse of, of where it went because of the chaos that we see. In order for us to have community, there must be unity. You can't even spell the word community without the word unity. And it, it seems that we have to start gr uh, educating and grooming the kids to realize that uh, there's love in this world. Um, I've got a five-year-old grandson who, in daycare, he's one of a few of the white kids. He's colorblind in the sense that he's hanging out with everybody, having a ball with everybody. And that is absolutely fantastic in my mind. 
right. I would agree with you, Hank. I have a six-year-old granddaughter, soon to be seven. She's the youngest of my grandchildren. And what I will say is that we don't have to teach kids to be colorblind. What we have to teach them is values. And, and that's what, you know, that in spite of your color or the color of a person's skin, which doesn't even make any sense because, you know, I identify ethnically as black, but my skin is brown. You know, you identify ethnically as white, but your skin doesn't look like a sheet. And we've taken those things, those statements. We, we just need to, we can learn to appreciate one another's qualities in terms of values. America's value system is where, you know, the problems have been historically. In fact, unfortunately, in America, value is determined by the absence of black folk. And here's what I mean by that. Okay. Your community, uh, if you live in a group, in a community where uh, there's all white people, and what is believed is that the value of their houses is where it is as long as there are no black people who live in that community. That's America's history. As soon as blacks started moving in, there was a belief that the value of their properties went down. Am I correct? Sure. That was the... The uh, joke, there goes the neighborhood, right? There goes the neighborhood because it comes down to values. It's the same thing would apply to the schools. We saw that in the Midwest. We saw it in Arkansas. We saw it in Alabama. We saw it when we tried to desegregate schools. They didn't want to go to school. They said their schools were valued as long as there was an absence of blacks. As soon as the black students were asked to go to their schools to desegregate, they had to bring the National Guard in because it was believed that once the black kids went to their schools, it would lose value. And busing. So Americans' view of values is based on the absence of black people. And busing to mix the uh, the folks uh, seemed to be a dirty word, so they came up with the magnet school concept, right? Where that's it. That's the val. That's values. That's taught. That begins at home. That's why I say to you, it's a moral issue. It's a heart issue. You know, we're talking about changing the software, and when I say software, I'm talking about the thought process of human beings. And that could take another generation or two to... Absolutely. Right? To, but you have to get started, and that's what Dr. King was saying. You remember when he gave his I Have a Dream speech, he said he had a dream that there would be a day when black children and white children would actually be able to play together, and that a man would be judged by the content of his character rather than the color of his skin. He talked about it in his I Have a Dream speech. Because he understood it. And that was how many years ago? Where do we, it's almost 60 years. That's why when he writes, you know, where do we go from here? Community or chaos? And we're seeing the effects of not embracing community, which is why we're dealing with chaos. So to sum things up in this hour-long conversation, we have to... um, Start at a very young age, 
with our children and uh we have to engage our churches. Our churches have to take the I think the churches have to take the lead in this. Because we have the ability, those of us who are uh, pastors and preachers and teachers, we have the ability to speak to the moral mindset and, and help them understand there's a moral imperative that if we are going, if we want our children to change, we've got to change. And I've noticed we've got to be the ones to show up. I've noticed, though, that uh, in the Catholic Church, they've had to merge parishes because the congregations were so small. And that's happening in Judaism and uh, perhaps other uh, groups. And uh, why? Because I think that not enough uh, kids are going to the, uh, uh, to the churches, the synagogues, and so on. Well, the kids don't see the benefit. They don't see the impact. They're questioning us. They're saying, why? Where's the value? You guys don't seem to be getting anything done. The white evangelical church is one of the most powerful lobby groups, the the most powerful forces in America, and they have not come out to the forefront. I can tell you right now, I have not gotten a call from any white pastor saying to me, Bishop Rollins, let's sit down. Let's talk about how we can merge our resources, how we can uh, work together and, 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 and create a synergy so that the church can be the impetus of healing for us, starting with our communities, and, and, and perhaps this can move across the country. I haven't gotten that call. I welcome that call for any white pastor who's listening. You know, Hank Gross has my, my contact information, and, I'll, and I can say it right now on this podcast. Hank can give out my cell phone number to any white pastor who wants to sit down and have a conversation with me about the role of the church in dealing with this chaos and dealing with this situation that we're facing in America, that if if it's not addressed, it's going to destroy us. And the church about- has got an, got a, this is a watershed moment that the church has probably the best opportunity as it ever has to actually see a revival. I think there would be more people coming back to all of our churches if we can lead the way. 